You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Thank you for joining us this week as we continue our teaching series on the book of Revelation. Good morning, Real Life. Uh, Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I'm a little afraid to preach right now. Uh, How are you guys doing? All right, enough questions for you. I don't know why I said that. We are working... We are working through Revelation. We are going to work through Revelation 12. Today we have been walking through uh, this book using the same hermeneutic, fancy word, uh, means way to interpret, the same hermeneutical principles as we would use in any other book of the Bible, wanting to search for authorial intent. Uh, What is the intent of the author? Wanting to ask the question, what kind of genre of literature are we working with? What does that mean? And understanding that, what is John, the author, Uh, trying to say to his audience, an audience that's being persecuted, uh, pursued, oppressed, executed, uh, losing their life at the hand of the empire, which happens to be Rome in this case. And so John is on a micro level, on a macro level, just kind of any way you look at it, John is consistently showing us a picture of some kind of conflict, whether it's a cosmic battle, this cosmic Armageddon, whether it's Uh, the games imagery that we looked at and how we find ourselves as fellow competitors in this cosmic games and the way that we run our race, the way that we compete in these games tells the world what our God is like. Just some form of conflict, some form of there's this guy, there's empire, there's Caesar, there's Rome, there's the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of man, the kingdom of empire, and there's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Shalom, a kingdom built on a completely different set of upside-down counterintuitive principles. And the methods that this kingdom, people belonging to this kingdom, they use a different uh, set of tools to engage the world. They, They follow in the allegiance of the slain lamb. So they don't take up arms. They don't fight against this empire with the same kind of weapons. They they go they go to lay down their lives to die because that's what their rabbi did. And so it's this conflict that we're looking at, and we're going to see John do that again today. He's going to, he's going to paint a picture of a conflict. We're going to enter into a few chapters here, really through the rest of the book of Revelation, where there's a massive conflict between a beast, a dragon, a red dragon, if you're keeping track. Um, thank you. Uh, and, and a red dragon and a, and, a, and a woman who gives birth to this male child. So if you guys are ready, I'm just going to, I've been late like every week, so I'm going to try not to be late today, but I've made that promise before and everybody knows how that ends. So here we go, Revelation 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and on his heads, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God 
in which she is to be nourished for, and here's that reference from last week, 1,260 days, which was how long? Three and a half years. Very good memory. Okay? So we have this section of chapter 12, and it, it, it sets the stage between this conflict. There is a woman. She's got, uh, she was, she's closed. She's got the moon under her feet. She's got uh, a crown with 12 stars on it. And she's about ready to give birth to a male child. Now, this male child, Christian tradition says, is a, a, a reference to Jesus. I'm not going to argue with that at all. There might be other, de- like, there might be more depth and nuance and breadth to that. But I want to do something else today. I, I'm not going to argue with Christian tradition there at all. I, I think that child seen as Jesus is appropriate. And this woman, she goes to give birth to this male child. And the dragon, this great red dragon, seven heads, ten horns, on its head, seven diadems. There, you, got, you got this picture in your head, right? Everybody, okay, no. I don't know how you picture that, but it's all, it's interesting to, we're just going to take Revelation literally. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is weird. I've never heard anybody try to take that one literally, but uh, we all know where to draw a line somewhere. Um, so this dragon sits and, and waits for this child because when this child is born, the dragon's going to devour it, we're told. But instead, at the last minute, this child is taken up into heaven and the woman escapes. So like in this moment of, here's this dragon and all of a sudden the child's gone and, he, and she escapes and uh, right? There's this massive conflict. Now I want to stop here in the passage and ask the question, who's the woman? Now this is kind of heady and academic and we were talking about that in Sermon Club this week. Like Revelation is just an academic study because of the complicated nature of this apocalyptic genre. So like we talked about in the very first week of this series, there are two groups of people in the room, right? There's a group of people in the room that just wants to like, yeah, revelation, woo And then there's another group of people that's like, what's next? Like, and when do we start the next series? Um, so what we're trying to do here is we're trying to dance between both, and hopefully we've done that well. I don't know if we have or not, but hopefully we've, we've danced between the academia and trying to understand the genre and actually landing the plane somewhere that's applicable and compelling. Uh, that's a balance we're trying to, so let's, let's get a little, academic is my thing, you guys know that, so let's get a little like heady for a moment. Who's the woman? Well, the woman could be just direct, like could be Mary. Um, there's a lot of theories, by the way. I'm only going to give you the good ones. Thank you. Uh, I'm only going to give you the four good ones. Um, it could be Mary, and that would, that, would, uh, that would make sense in a lot of ways. Obviously, she gives birth to Jesus. Um, it could obviously just be kind of that literal application, but the problem is, is we don't really know how to apply some of the other details of that. Uh, 12 stars uh, could be, 12 is always going to be a reference to the tribes of Israel and God's people. Is Mary representative of the, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe not. And then she escapes into the wilderness. Uh, it's really hard to figure out how that would apply to Mary. Doesn't really, so maybe that's not our best option, but it's an option. Uh, the woman could be uh, Israel. That actually would make a ton of sense. Um, 12 stars, a crown of 12 stars. Absolutely, the woman could be depictive of Israel. She is often described, Israel is, all throughout the Old Testament as a she, as a bride, as God's, uh, God's bride, which he marries in the desert at Mount Sinai, and they walk this journey together. So this woman could absolutely be Israel. Uh, Israel would have given birth to Messiah. You could see how that image would work. One of the harder parts of that, what does it mean that Israel escapes to the wilderness? Eh, she has escaped to the wilderness before, Babylon, exile. That could be even, even the exodus. But what's the application to the Revelation story? Eh, I don't know. 
It could be a uh, 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 reference to the church. The woman could be the church. That would also make sense. The crown of 12 stars would also apply in a lot of ways. Uh, that would be the people of God, not so much just the 12 tribes of Israel, but the 12 tribes of Israel as they represent both Jew and Gentile together in this adopted family of God. That would work. Um, Obviously, escaping to the wilderness, we'll talk about this in just a moment, but that would work for the early church. That is absolutely something that they did during this period. But how is, does, the, does the church give birth to Jesus? That might be a little bit of a, I don't know. So my point being, all these options of who is the woman have some interesting takes on it, but they also have some interesting hurdles to overcome as far as interpretation. You guys following me so far? Okay, let me pause for just a moment and talk about a relevant P.S., um, I just said the early church fleeing to the wilderness. This is not something we've dealt with in this series yet. Up to this point, we've dealt with a church who has stood her ground and went to the sword and given their physical lives, their literal lives, for the sake of the testimony of Christ, the gospel, however you want to word that. Rome says, worship the emperor, and this group of people has, has stood there and said no. And, and that has obviously, up to this point, been an honored, uh, um, a good response that the New Testament, not just Revelation, but that the New Testament would say, yes, that is what it means to follow in the way of the slain lamb, Okay. I would say there are four responses that I could go over today. There probably are more. But there were four responses to what to do with Rome in this first century persecution. Two of them are okay. Two of them are not okay. So the first response was to stand and, and die. And that was an okay response. A second response, one that would have been not okay, is to fight back. The New Testament says this is not, all throughout the New Testament, Revelation included, this is not an appropriate response to Rome. You don't take up your sword and fight back. It's not okay for followers of Jesus. It'd be okay for followers of Caesar. It'd be okay for followers of lots of other worldviews, not for the worldview of the slain lamb. You don't fight back. It's not an option, not for followers of Jesus. Uh, and don't apply that, whatever. I don't wanna ruffle a bunch of feathers here today. Early church, not an acceptable way to respond to Rome. A third option that would also not be acceptable would be compromise. Uh, you can remember Revelation talking about the Nicolaitans. One of the theories about who the Nicolaitans were, one of the best theories and the one that I share, is that the Nicolaitans were a group of people that said, Rome knocks on your door, says we need you to worship the emperor, we need you to offer some incense on the altar. The Nicolaitans would teach, you know what, God knows your heart. It's okay. Offer the incense, say the prayer it's great, just don't believe it. God knows what you really believe, no big deal. It'd be kind of the equivalent of like crossing your fingers behind your back and being like, Caesar's Lord. <laughs> okay. Not, for the people of the New Testament, not an acceptable approach. Now, I, I think we ought to wrestle with that, uh, like a PS to wrestle with as you leave here, wrestle with that, because I think that's how we do it. I think that's how we do it. By, by, by far in our culture, we just take a little bit of the world, a little bit of our, this dream and that dream and uh, all our culture and a little bit of this and, a little, and we worship Jesus and we just kind of put it all together and go, well, God knows what I really think. Some to wrestle. Um, but the fourth option, that was the second uh, acceptable approach was to flee, to run. 
Uh, Aaron and I, last uh, two weeks ago, we ended our trip in Turkey by spending two days in a region called Cappadocia. Say Cappadocia. Cappadocia was a place that people of all faiths throughout history have always run whenever uh, they've been under persecution because there's a rock there called Tufa. It is a, uh, sorry, I just spit all over the front row. It's like splash zone at SeaWorld. Um, uh, <laughs> um, so what was I talking about? Um, uh, oh yeah, the tufa. The tufa is this volcanic ash that combines with humidity and oxygen and over time and pressure. And it, I, I'm not a scientist, if you can tell. Um, and, and it creates this rock that you can dig into. And so they build all of these underground cities. It's one of the places where people, uh, Christians went to hide during the Roman persecution, uh, all kinds of different people. Muslims went to hide during the different periods of the crusades. Like all kinds of people went to this region to hide. That was an acceptable response. Now, I remember when I studied this the first time over in Turkey, I remember like self-righteously thinking, okay, like that's an acceptable answer, but it sure is a cowardly answer. That was what I thought. You know, I, I've been studying, my, my teacher's name is Ray. Like Ray, I've been studying the people of Ephesus who stood there and died at the point of the sword. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what I think about these people who ran and hid. And he just kind of smiled and said, yeah, wait. I'm like, okay. So I waited and we got to Cappadocia. And uh, I remember getting down in one of the underground churches. And I remember, I remember Ray saying, you know, throughout all of our discussion, what surprised me is that none of you, when I've asked you, what do you do? None of you told me to do what your rabbi told you to do. What are you talking about? What did my rabbi tell you to? And he pulled out all the passages where Jesus said, when they come after you in one town, flee to another. When, when Rome shows up, he says, run to the mountains. How come none of you did what your rabbi, the only instructions your rabbi actually ever gave you were to run? And I went, hmm. And then we continued to study this church that ran, and I realized how hard they worked to preserve a faith. Both of these honored, acceptable approaches of how do you deal with Rome. Some people felt like God had led them to stay and to die and bear their testimony that way. This passage in Revelation 12 references a people of God who runs and hides in the wilderness. And that too is a reason that you and I sit in this place with a faith that we call our own. Because people were willing to leave it all behind rather than compromise and preserve a faith, and preserve a text, and preserve, and preserve, and preserve something that you and I take for granted today. Does that kind of make sense? Okay, I'll come back later, later today. Um, but there's a fourth option for the woman. The fourth option is that the woman could be Eve. And you're like, what? Like, if it can't be Mary, how could it be Eve? Well, if you think about it, when we ran into Eve all the way back in the beginning of the story, and God is dealing out curses. He's talking to the serpent and he starts dealing a curse out to the serpent and he talks about who? The woman's offspring. And Genesis said that the woman's offspring was going to be the one that the serpent would try to, go, to destroy. He would, he would strike her offspring's heel, but her offspring would crush his head would deal a death blow to the serpent. So the woman could be all those options we talked about, but without a doubt, if you're viewing this story as a Jewish reader, without a doubt, you're hearing echoes of Genesis. 
The word for, for dragon, serpent, very closely connected, especially in the Septuagint. This, you're hearing like, oh, snap. There's a cosmic war between this woman. Because on the outside, it looks like this great red dragon, like think Game of Thrones. Like great red dragon ready to devour a woman and this child. You're like, this is not like a fair fight. But if you know your text, you're like, oh, I know where this ends. Somebody sent me the spoiler alert in Genesis, right? Okay. See, Moses should have put that in there. Spoiler alert for Revelation. Never mind. Okay. So that's who the woman could be. But you have that in the back of your mind as you're reading this passage. Okay, let's, let's keep going through Revelation here. Now, war arose in heaven. So the dragon sits there, the child gets taken up, the woman escapes, and now, uh, so he goes up to heaven to fight this battle. Now, if you know your text, you're already, you're already thinking about certain passages. But now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, excuse me, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser, which actually the word there in Hebrew is shatan, shatana, okay? So the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Now for the second paragraph in our passage, second part of chapter 12, I wanted to ask the question, who's the dragon? Now, on one hand, the answer is very, very easy. The dragon, as it tells us in the passage, Satan, that great serpent, the devil, Satan, that is the dragon. Okay, so the, the, if you look at your passage, your passage tells you who the dragon is. But the dragon is being seen, and you're going to see this very clearly next week. Next week, we're going to pull apart this beast. Why seven heads? Why ten horns? Why diadems, crowns on every head? Why that? A, it's going to be a reference to the text. It's going to come right out of Daniel. But, but B, it's going to have cultural implications, which are going to be crystal clear next chapter. So this dragon represents, it is Satan, but the dragon and the beast represents Rome. Just hold on to next week if you're like, well, I don't know. Okay, hold on till next week. The, the dragon and the beast is going to be Rome. So it's Satan as experienced through the world of empire. And in this world, empire ends up being Rome for the readers of Revelation. Does that make sense? You tracking with me? Now here's why that's important because where is John getting all of his material from? The text, yes, we've done our job as teachers, thank you. John is getting his material from the text. There are two passages. If you heard about a war in heaven and somebody getting thrown down out of heaven to the earth, there are two passages that you would think of immediately as a Jewish reader. One of them is Ezekiel 28 and the other one is Isaiah 14. 
Now, I want to get done on time today, so I'm only going to look at Ezekiel 28 for today, but Isaiah 14 is in your notes. Now, here's what I love about this. These are two passages that we're somewhat familiar with because we call this the backstory to Satan's fall. These are the two passages where we get, have you, you know what the story I'm talking about? Well, Satan was a worship leader in heaven and he challenged God and he had a bunch of angels. And so God threw him out of heaven like that. You guys are familiar with the story I'm talking about, right? I used to, I grew up in the church like hearing that like, where do we get that from? Like, where does that backstory come from? Well, it comes from these two passages. The problem is, is the two passages tell us explicitly that's not what they're talking about. <laughs> Both Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, it won't be in your notes on Isaiah, but go check it in your Bible. Isaiah 14 starts by telling you who this is about. In Isaiah, it's about the king of Babylon. Is it about Satan? No, it's about the king of Babylon. Well, isn't it really about Satan? No. <laughs> Isaiah told us who it was about. This is about the king of Babylon. Like it doesn't get any more, I am prophesying about the king of Babylon. Well, he's really, no. I'm prophesying about the king of Babylon. Now in Ezekiel 28, if you check your notes, it's going to be about the king of Tyre. It tells you right at the beginning, this is a prophecy. Take up this lament about the king of Tyre. Does that make sense? Okay, now let's, I want to, you got, you got Isaiah in your notes. I want to show you Ezekiel because I want you to understand, realize in the early audience when they understand their text, this text isn't about a guy in red tights and a pitchfork. <laughs> this, this test, this, this text is about empire. It's about Satan taking the form of oppressive national imperial rule. And in Isaiah's day, it was Babylon. In Ezekiel's passage, it's Tyre. Now, connected to Satan, absolutely. But we're not talking about the guy Satan. We're talking about Satan as he's experienced in these kingdoms of the earth. Let's look at Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre. Now, does your Bible have a footnote that says, also known as Satan? No. Say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In, your, in the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. I will sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. But that was straight out of Tyre. Tyre is a harbor. Uh, they, they ruled because they had this connection to the sea and the ability to have this super strong economy. And all rulers of the pagan world often said, I am a God, okay? But you are a mere mortal. Would that work if it were about Satan? No, Satan's not a mortal. <laughs> that word means man, in case you're curious. You're, you're a mere man. You're not a God. You think you are as wise as a God. Are you wiser than Daniel? Is no secret hidden from you? By your wisdom and understanding, you have gained wealth for yourself and amassed gold and silver in your treasuries. By your great skill in trading, you have increased your wealth and become, and because of your wealth, your heart has grown proud. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says, because you think you are wise, as wise as a God... I am going to bring foreigners against you, the most ruthless of nations. They will draw their swords against your beauty and wisdom and pierce your shining splendor. They will bring you down to the pit and you will die a violent death in the heart of the seas. Will you then say, I am a God in the presence of those who kill you? You will be but a mortal, not a God, in the hands of those who slay you. You will die the death of the uncircumcised at the hands of the foreigners. I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. 
The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the Lord, sovereign Lord says. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. By the way, where does that, you're like, oh, this is obviously about Satan. No. It just told us this was about the king of Tyre. Now, when you look at creation, uh, we would say creation mythology, not the Genesis account. When you look at creation mythology, the idea of the ancient garden is all throughout, it's birthed out of Sumerian literature, the most ancient forms of human civilization. So Babylon, Tyre, they all have a story about the garden of God. The word paradise is actually a Persian word that we've borrowed to create the word paradise because it refers to this garden. It's not just unique to Genesis, it's in all, everybody's creation story in that ancient world. Every precious stone adorned you, carnelian, chrysolite, emerald, topaz, onyx, and jasper, lapis lazuli, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were like the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. All comes out of Tyre mythology. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God. I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I, th what? Through you to the earth, I made a spectacle of you before kings. By your many sins and dishonest trade, you have de desecrated your sanctuaries. So I made a fire come out from you and it consumed you. I reduced you to the ashes of the ground and the sight of all who are one. Now you can actually finish the, actually this is the last one I think. All the nations who knew you are appalled at you. You have come to a horrible end and will be no more. This about the king of Tyre and Isaiah about the kingdom of Babylon both of these things talk about this, this ruler challenging God on the mount of God, being thrown down to the earth and experiencing destruction. Any reader of Revelation would immediately connect this to Rome. Because of your pride and your wealth, you desecrated your sanctuaries in injustice. Whew. Now, if you know any kind of Roman context, you go, oh, that's Rome. John, pulling image from the Old Testament, talks about a dragon waging war in heaven and getting thrown to the earth. And every writer of Revelation goes, <laughs> we have a woman who gives birth to offspring and a dragon who wants to devour it. And this offspring is going to be the thing that actually ends up defeating the dragon. And the dragon goes up because he's mad and he makes war in heaven. I know where this story is going. Did we? Or did we like, there's like a great war in the future between, or did, or did we go backwards and think, this has already happened before. If I'm a reader of Revelation, I'm hearing John's message loud and clear. I know where this is headed. I'm reading this with a smirk on my face because I'm like, this is clever, John. This is clever. I like this. Now, what is John actually calling his people to? Let's go back to Revelation 12 where we left off. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle. Where is he getting that image from? The text. 
I carried you out of Egypt on eagles' wings, God would say in the Old Testament, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. Interesting play on words there. I thought it was a dragon, but now it's a serpent. And John's going, (laughs) wink, wink, nudge, nudge. To the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. By the way, what is that? A time, a times, and half a time. Three and a half. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river the dragon had poured from his mouth. And the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her, on the rest of her offspring. So the male child, we said, was who? Jesus, but this woman, Eve, Israel, church, whoever, this woman also gave birth to more offspring. That'd be who? Us, and more importantly, them, but us as well, okay? So the dragon goes to wage war on the offspring. This, isn't, this is very present for the readers of Revelation. Present, not future, not even past. It's very present, and they're getting their information from past, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, now, actually, let's go back, Joe, and hold on that slide. The rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And again, here's this John reference to the people. What is their call? To keep the commandments and walk in faithful obedience. Why? Because that is how God, in his wisdom, and for whatever reason, it's partially how God defeats the work of the devil. It's how God defeats Satan. It's how God tosses the dragon into the lake of burning sulfur at the end of Revelation. Because God's people didn't give up, and they walked in faithful obedience. You see, the story of David and Goliath is this story about a man, a mere mortal, who's willing to take stones and go out and fight a giant who Saul won't engage. Now, just to give you a flyby, Goliath is six cubits tall. He has a spearhead that weighs six shekels. And we're told in another passage in the Old Testament, he has six-fingered brothers, He's six, six, six. And if you go back to 1 Samuel 17, his armor is like what? Scales. Six, 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 and armor like scales. And you think, serpent. What does David do to kill the serpent? Crushes his And that's pre-Jesus. I can guarantee you any Jew prior to Jesus' day who read that, well, even after Jesus' day, anybody who reads that passage from a Jewish perspective says, that's Genesis coming true. David went out there, and because he was willing to be faithful and obedient, crushes the serpent's head. This isn't just an Old Testament idea, because Romans will go on to tell us the God of peace will soon crush Satan, what? Underneath your feet. How does the serpent get crushed? Now, I know that when we read Genesis and we read the woman's offspring, we immediately think of who? Say Jesus. 
Yes, and I don't want to take anything away from that. Ultimately, Satan is vanquished through the work of Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. Amen? Amen? But there's another part of that. The Jews have always looked at that passage and said, how is it that the snake strikes at the guy's heel, but the snake ends up getting crushed? What kind of, what kind of what's going on that that would happen? Where do you find snakes in, in this ancient world? When you're walking through the field or anywhere, I don't know, whatever, I'm not in the, whatever, but a snake goes to strike your heel and what do you do? Why? Because you are walking. The ancient Jews always said, you're going to crush the work of Satan by walking obediently. There's no great, you just walk obediently. He's going to try, stupid snake, he's going to try to strike your, but if you're walking, if you're walking, and the message of John, you can't give up. You can't give up. People of Revelation, you can't give up. No matter which approach you took, whether you decided to stand in the face of empire and say, I will not offer the incense. You can't, and everybody around you is dying. And you know that when you say no to that, you're going to die at the tip of the sword as well. You can't give up. You can't give up. If you're a group of Christians that decides you're going to flee to Cappadocia or anywhere else and go hide in the caves and preserve a faith, and you begin to wonder if this is even worth it, because it's really hard you can't give up. This is the message, the broken record. If we're starting to sound like a broken record in this series, it's because we're doing our job. The broken record of Revelation is you have to persevere. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. You have to keep doing what God's called you to do. It's the only way we defeat the dragon. And you think, you look around at Rome and you go, dude, it ain't working. And John says, yes, it is. It's worked before. It will work again. And it's what God's told us. It's what our rabbi modeled for us. It will work. So much for ending on time. I need to head towards the Lord's Supper. And we got some implications we're going to go through, but if our servers will go back and uh, get those elements ready for us. If you are visiting here, we have an open Eucharist table. That means if you want to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you are family and you need to join us today. Just hold on to the bread and hold on to the juice and we'll take it all together here in just a moment. I only got three implications for you this morning. God has always chosen to partner with the faithfulness of his people. I, I'm assuming that God is also doing all kinds of other things I, I'm not even aware of. I'm assuming that God is up to things that I could never even fathom or imagine. I'm assuming that God's doing lots of things and he only lets me in on a few of them. But one of the few things that God has let us in on very, very deliberately and clearly is that part of the way he's gonna put the world together is he's gonna partner with people like you and me. I don't know why God does that, to be honest, because that's a really poor like that's a really bad strategy because we are dumb sometimes, right? We, I, I, if I were God and I knew what I had made when he made me, I would struggle with the strategy of I'm going to partner with that guy. <laughs> the, uh, uh, there's a rabbinical story that my teacher uh, adapted somewhat for a Jesus community. 
And the rabbis tell the story about Messiah. Messiah comes down and he does his work in the world. He confronts corrupt religious leadership. He uh, confronts imperial corruption. He goes to a cross and lays down his life. He does all of his work and he goes back up to heaven after the resurrection. And the angels all gather around and they're listening to all these stories, this story, and that, I healed that blind man, and, and there was this other thing that happened, and then there was this other story, and this other story, and they're listening intently. And he says, and then I gave them the great commission, and I left it in their hands, and I left, and I came up here to see you. And the angels, wide eyes, look on their face, say, oh, okay, but what's, what's plan B? Because what if it doesn't work? And Messiah says, I'm sorry, there is no other story. You are the story that God's chosen to work through to bring about the restoration of all things. I don't understand all the crooks and crannies of God's mind. I don't even understand a fraction of God's mind. But that's one of the things he's told us time and time again. I want to put the world together through people like you partnering with me. Next implication. However we choose to respond to the problem of evil, it must be done in the company of other people. However we choose to respond to the problem of evil, it must be done in the company of other people. Please realize that every option that we encounter in the New Testament, however you respond to Rome, whether you go to the sword to die, whether you run away to the caves and the holes and the underground cities, no matter what op appropriate, acceptable option you choose, it has to be done with other people. None of these decisions are made with, by one person on the back porch with their Instagram shot of their Bible. You know, this is what I'm going to do. These are intensely difficult decisions made by entire communities of God that say, how are we going to respond? This is how. And when, you, when they knock on your door, we are going to weep and we are going to cry and we are going to gather together and we are going to pray our hearts out because tomorrow, chances are good you go to die. This is what we've chosen to do. Don't give up. When you, when you go to Cappadocia and you live in an underground city, you ain't going to make it by yourself. You have to have other people encouraging you to walk the path. And that last implication. Our job is to partner with God in overcoming evil by walking in faithful obedience. Our job is to partner with God in overcoming evil by walking in faithful obedience. My job is not, my job is not to look outside and figure out whether my faithful obedience is working. The assertion of the book of Revelation is it works. It will work. It is working. Don't give up. Now, you and I don't live in the same world as Revelation, but I promise you that principle extends to all generations, all contexts at every point in time. Walking in faithful obedience always works. It's how God defeats the works of Satan. I would ask you to wrestle with this morning whether or not you believe it. And if the answer is yes, then leave this place and walk. Now we hold in our hands 
We've done a lot of things here. I wanna do something different this morning. We hold in our hands the bread and the juice. I wanna make this a moment of celebration because we know how the story ends. That this is the great work that destroyed the devil. It, on, one hand, on one hand, the battle's already over, amen? On another hand, the battle is very much still going. Uh, almost every scholar I know of on some level ref, uh, in the New Testament wrestles with this already not yet tension in the New Testament. It's already been accomplished. It's not yet accomplished. Let's celebrate this morning that there's a large part of the battle that has already been accomplished. It's the only way that you and I can wake up after a horrible week of lots of rebellion, lots of disobedience, lots of Nicolaitan work, and we can wake up and say, you know what, today I'm in allegiance to the slain lamb. Forgiveness, new days, new blessings. That night Jesus took a piece of bread he broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He said, take and eat. This is my body. Whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember this victorious work of Jesus. And maybe the bread was the already, and maybe the cup is the not yet. Because cup speaks of covenant. Cup speaks of agreement in this ancient Eastern world. So maybe the bread was that ofikoman and the Passover, the celebration of what already has been accomplished. And maybe this is the recognition that we're invited to enlist in this holy, sacred, slain lamb methodology. He took a cup saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. Whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember Jesus. Father God, as I, uh, as I think about this passage and the chapters that are still to come, we're in a section of Revelation where, uh, for me, I have always loved to think back to those early Christians and how they engaged the work of the great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems. And God, I think about how they stood or how they ran, but whatever it is, they walked faithfully. They preserved a faith. They preserved a faith that I take for granted too often. God, I think back to that story, to underground churches that I've sat in, to, to ruins in Ephesus. And I always think back and I'm compelled. I'm compelled by their, their faithfulness. I want to be more faithful in a world that at this point lacks all the Roman swords, it lacks the imperial executions, well, and maybe it doesn't. But, God, I want to be more like that. I want to be more like my faithful forefathers that John spoke to, but most of all, I just don't want to give up. So may we hear the word of revelation to overcome, to persevere, and to never, ever, ever give up. And it's in the name, the resurrected name of this Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.